Uh, welcome to Budge, uh, Behavioural Science and Nudge Theory in Business, Education and Life. Uh, I'm with Dr. Darren Coppin, uh, psychologist, writer, speaker, uh, and of course retired circus llama trainer. How are you, mate? I'm very good. Yes, I had to, had to quit that because I spit too much. But Paul Miles, Managing Director of the Busy Group, one of Australia's largest education, training and employment organisations, and of course, former hairdresser to Dwayne The Rock Johnson. That's where I get all my Good tips from. We, um, we first met about eight years ago, maybe even ten years ago, more than ten years ago actually, in, in a cafe in Sydney. Pre-Tinder. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. And um, uh, basically because uh, you, you created a company in the UK and, and then sort of brought it to Australia around uh, nudge theory, behavioral insights into the employment sector. And, and it was enabling long-term unemployed people, how you could activate and help long-term unemployed people become engaged with work. Uh, and you had some incredible outcomes actually supporting long-term unemployed people getting to work. So, so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about the in crowd. We're going to talk about why rich uh, public school boys should hang out in the hood. And um, we're going to talk about do employers hate the unemployed, a controversial one, which I'm going to straight away say no because of my job. Um, mate, so, so what did you first, you know, how did you first come up with this notion of activating long-term unemployed people through behavioral science? Yeah, it was, I, I was managing director of an employment services company and there were some things in the sector that had been driving us mad for years. Uh, first of all, why doesn't everyone want to work? Um, there'd been no real answer to that. Um, there's loads of uh, jobs and yet there's still unemployed people. What's going on? Um, Which of course is incredibly relevant today. We, we are down to about 4% unemployment. Um, uh, massive amounts of, of vacancies out there but we just can't activate still parts of our population yeah. to, to do this yeah, and, and it is it's really complex um and yet when i spoke to ministers and what have you sometimes they they refer to the unemployed as if they're almost a separate race yeah. of people rather than just citizens like you and i under slightly different circumstances yeah. um i think you've been unemployed before in your life at some point absolutely yeah, yeah of course i have yeah, me yeah. as well yeah, and I look forward to it in the future again, based on these podcasts. <laughs> but there were other things, like we, we, we've got a, such a nurturing uh, sector, um, where people do it as a vocation as much as a, as a career um, and a job. Um, and, and, but why is there one of the highest turnover rates of staff of any sector? Yeah, it's huge, um, isn't it? I, th I think you said to me the other day, uh, eight to ten times higher than working on an oil rig yeah it's you know the oil rig turnover percentages is sub 10 percent and it can be up to 30 percent a year in um, in the employment services yeah. sector um so yeah it, it's just weird um and there, there are all sorts of other things like we in, in the sector we've kind of done what's gone on before um so what could we harness because there's probably few industries um more focused on behavioral change than, than there is, and, and complexities um, than there is with uh, employment services. So, so, so you're in the UK, you've got, I, I know from memory, you know, you used to literally have a, a, a number of mobile sort of career training centres that you take around the UK, sort of helping the long-term unemployed. You, you, you'd start to get very frustrated with the fact that you can't work out why some people continue to be unemployed. 
Um, so, so what was the next step then in terms of the behavioural science part? Well, I, I got into something um, called solutions-focused conversations because it, it became apparent um, that when I sat down and did one-to-ones, which is where I really learned what was going on, and also learned what I was telling my staff to do was not practical. Yep. Um, so, for example, one of the things, so we looked at solutions-focused approaches and, 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 and conversations because what happens with a conversation is it becomes barriers-focused. Why haven't you done this? Why can't you do that? What do we need to overcome? And then your entire focus becomes on these issues and problems and failings that seem to get bigger and bigger and more and more insurmountable. Whereas if you talk about somebody's strengths or solutions or how things have worked in the past, then they become almost irrelevant. Yep. But one of the things that, you know, an amazing moment for me was um, when I, I sat down and listened and nearly everybody, as soon as a job seeker would come in and sit there and go, oh, how are you going? Like, it's just a natural thing to do. But I never once heard out of hundreds of job seekers go, oh, I'm great. I love being unemployed. Life's mm. brilliant at the moment. Yeah. It's an invitation to start listing their problems because that job seekers, just like me or you, they're embarrassed to be there. <laughs> and they're trying to communicate yeah. the fact that if you were given the same circumstances I'm going through right now, it'd be you sitting here and not me. So, yeah, the dog's really ill and I can't do this and I, I, I haven't been able to insure the car, so I can't get you in. And, and, and then the whole conversation becomes a downward spiral of all their issues and and, and problems just by saying oh how's it going yeah so I, I drummed it into my staff I took them all out and, and got them all um, training in these solutions focused technique and the one thing I kept saying to everyone don't say how you're going when someone sits down so then I, I went and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna show them you know that I'm I'll muck in and do this so mm. I went to our Croydon office and, and Croydon sat, in London it's Croydon in South London and um, sat down Sorry, I have no. I've never been to Croydon. Croydon, sort of an area of high unemployment. Uh, yes, relatively. Yeah. So it's an urban uh, metropolitan area, and um, and and so I, I sat down, and almost the whole. Um, weirdly, none of the other staff had appointments first thing in the morning. They were all just sitting there quietly, listening out for for what I was up to with this this first client that came in. So anyway, they came in, they sat down, and uh, I said. All right, mate. How's it going? <laughs> yeah. We might re-record that. Bit. <laughs> you said we could swear. I don't know if you go on YouTube or not. <laughs> you went. Yeah. Gosh, gosh, <laughs> you can beat that out. And now everyone started laughing because I just fell into it. It was just so natural. And yet I've been telling everyone off not to do that. Yeah. So you can see so many layers. Oh, it's it's of so behavior. hard to break those natural behaviours, isn't it? Yeah. You, you, you can't not ask someone how's it going. So how did you recover from that? Um, well, I sacked myself, and um, <laughs> now everyone laughed. And then, then, then we had to come up with, um, oh, you know, what you've been up to, or um, oh, what's been going well, which sounds really awkward. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it, it's not. Once the person stops thinking, oh, that was a weird question, um, they start start actually thinking, oh, how do I answer this? So, oh, what's gone well since I saw you last? Mm. Um, and it just starts things in an upward spiral. So, so you then t- you then finished with that company. And you moved to Australia. And actually, created a company that specialises in behavioural science, nudge theory, and, and how to activate and, and ask those questions of unemployed people. Mm. Um, how, how did you go about you know developing that and rolling that out? Yeah, it was so. I sold that business to a um, division of a large university that was getting into uh, government employment services, and then so I just wanted to focus on what works, what doesn't. Um, consult and uh, apply for employment services 
uh, what we'd found out and tested worked or not. Mm -hmm. um, and then that formed the basis of my PhD on behavioural change and the unemployed. Um, yeah, and what, what works, what doesn't, isn't always, it's counterintuitive sometimes, yep. um, but hadn't really been researched. So these strengths-based approaches, as I said, uh, we know that they work better. Um, and people often say, well, we take a strengths-based approach, but you know, what is it? How do you ask the questions? Mm. How do you impart that? Because you can't make an unemployed person get a job. You can't, they've got to want to do it themselves, obviously. We all, we all know that. Um, but when you say to people, what do you do? Oh, I'll make people get jobs um, in the sector. It's, uh, you know, you, you, you've slipped into it. How do you facilitate the other person learning? And some of the things we mentioned in other podcasts, you know, using first names in communications, yeah. uh, social norming. Saying, oh, do you want to come along to this um, jobs fair? Uh, it's, oh, God, that would be awkward. It's like, you know, there's... Um, there's 32 other people already popping down and um, and, and half of those got a job uh, as a Yeah, that, that social norming is huge, isn't it? Where you take someone as some, something as simple as, oh, most people come to the job fair. Most people that want to come, most people that use our services want to come to the job fair. So you actually then socially norm yes. that ability. Because one of the things that you've often talked to me about in terms of how we can support the long-term unemployed is that social norming in the family that actually getting a job in a, in a, a long um, a multi-generational unemployment sort of situation is actually getting a job is not supported by the family um, you know you often talk about the, the young man who will go you know downstairs and his dad will sort of uh, berate him or laugh at him for having a suit on and going to a um, uh, an interview so how, so how do we challenge those sort of social norms yeah, but that's that's something that you mentioned um, in the intro, and that's called in-group. Mm. We all form these in-groups, and they might be like really weird people, like Liverpool supporters. <laughs> and even if you agree Greatest with something a Manchester United supporter says, yeah, um, you wouldn't admit that while you're Never. chatting to them. You'd, you'd mock them and run them Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Um, and if somebody tries to extract themselves from your in-group. You will also mock them, run them down, um, take the mickey, as we say in England. Um, and, and we, But we trust and we, we, we feel supported and we feel boosted somehow by being in an in-group. It's, it's an old survival clan-like um, behaviour. But if that young man is trying to get a job, so the story with that up in Bundaberg was he went for Bundaberg, an Queensland, Australia. In, yes. You get around. <laughs> well, there's a rum factory there. So. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, he, he, he went, his dad mocked him. He said, oh, you look ridiculous. You know, you're wearing that suit. You've slicked down your surfer dude hair. You look ridiculous. You, you make a complete fool of yourself. And then that same dad will go down to the pub, bump into a sort of an associate or friend at 11 a.m. as soon as it opens. Uh, he was knocking back a Jack Daniels, wearing a suit um, and done his hair up. And um, the dad says to his, his mate, he says, why are you all dressed up? And he, the bloke goes, oh, I've got an interview. And the dad will go, oh, you look a million dollars, you'll knock him dead. Um, and, and so what's clear is that there's a family in-group, tight-knit in-group, but it doesn't quite extend to um, loose contacts. Close friends, it would be there. So that boy, tried, now the dad wants that boy to succeed. He yeah. loves him, he wants him to do well, but his knee-jerk human base reaction without thinking about things is, oh, you're gonna look at, you know, you look stupid, it is to, to undermine him. So if people that work then in the employment sector who are trying to help long-term unemployed people, how can they support that young man or, or even the dad or other parts of that family? Because if it is the social norm in that family, that in-group is, is to not work. 
What can be done to challenge that, you know, through the use of behavioural science? It's a recognition which governments are increasingly recognising that the resilience needed, more than a qualification, more than uh, a lot of things we think we have to impart, uh, um, you know, uh, hygiene factors in order to get a job, is the resilience to overcome that mockery and the family not seeming to not support you. This is why you get so many dropouts uh, from work in the first um, uh, few weeks, while you get so many people dropping out of interviews when you phone them up the day before and they really keyed up for it. And why we were researching how to address that, we said, look, just, just tell them the family are going to mock them mm. or tell them in the first few weeks you're going to want to drop out of work. It's just going to seem so confusing and horrible, but don't. Stay for a month so at least you've got something to put in your resume. So it's, what, it's, it's as simple as that actually... You're building that resilience to, for them to accept the fact that they they potentially be mocked or ridiculed for having an interview, for having a job. It's actually doing that pre-work to make sure they're ready for that. Yeah, it's almost stress inoculation therapy. It's norming um, and familiarising people. So that when it happens, it's not unexpected. Ah, oh, they said Dad was going to take the mickey out of me. Ah, um, oh, they said I'd want to chuck it in. Well, I will chuck it in after I've achieved a month. And then by the time the month's up, and it's like, oh, what was I thinking? This isn't so bad. So people often stay on. But yeah, and we didn't expect that to work, just telling people, oh, I expect it to happen. It's going to mm-hmm. happen. Um, but it actually, it, anecdotally, from the people that implemented this, because we couldn't do a, a, a control group and a proper academic study, but they said, yeah, it, it seemed to double turn-up rates to interview mm-hmm. or halve dropout rates. Um, the other example uh, you talked about, just talk to me about this idea of these rich private, we say public school boys in the UK, but rich private school boy in the hood in London. What, what was that story around engaging well, it, within groups? It comes out of this learning that there's an in-group of the long-term unemployed. Um, that then influences how we, tactics and strategies. Um, so we, we said to um, employment consultants, look, align yourself with somebody so that they... Um, they believe, uh, you know, that sort of they listen to you because when you're from an out group, you, you, you don't listen to somebody. So if you say, oh, when I was unemployed, what I found work for me was blah, blah, blah. Suddenly they're thinking, oh, you're not just sitting on your high horse. You know what I'm going through to some yeah. extent. So align yourself. Now, there was this, this guy working for us. He'd been through public schools in Britain, which are public school being private schools private in schools most countries. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and he was a lovely guy and he wanted to work and make a difference and, and, and so he, he was working um, with, with job seekers again in South London on a youth programme uh, to engage disengaged youth that had never never worked before, often in gangs and what have you. Mm. So he said, yeah, do, align yourself with them, become part of their in-group so that they trust you and listen to you. <laughs> See, this is going already. Yeah, so he literally said to them, oh yeah, when I was in the hood doing crack, uh, <laughs> when he was talking to them, and like two people out of his group of 10 turned up to the next session. Yeah. So it turned out that there's this bias, this heuristic, I guess, of, of, of in-group and social norming but that's outweighed by authenticity. If it's clearly not authentic, um, then you yeah. don't listen to somebody. You lose any credibility. Uh, okay. So I, I visions with a, a baseball cap on back to front and a tweed jacket. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing we talked about, and there's so much we could talk about in this area, and I'm sure we'll cover this in lots of other podcasts, because you know there's, there's so much help that you can, can give the employment services sector um, to, to engage better with job seekers and, and to break a lot of those norms and, and to help activate them into employment. But um, one of the things we sort of joked about the study is do, do employers hate the unemployed? And inevitably, one of the things you know your dad will always say to you when you first get a job or if you want to move from a job you know as a kid is 
don't leave that job son until you've got another job you know mm. and it's, a, it's such a common thing to say so, so so what is this notion then about uh employers and business not liking unemployed well actually the, the, there are a few studies in this area um but and and these are these are um sectors that spend billions of dollars billions of pounds billions of euros a year in each nation and yet there's really limited evidence um, so you're supposed to be doing evidence-based interventions, but mm. there's, there's very little actual studies. But one study, well, there's been several studies on employers, would you give a long-term unemployed person a chance? And invariably, overwhelmingly, they say yes. Is, is th- but is that also a behavioural science thing where, you know, you don't stand there and say no? You know. There is an element of that, but these are confidential and they, they would yeah. see it genuinely in their heart of hearts, altruistically, they do want to give somebody a chance. Mm. But the reality is when you've got a pile of resumes this big and you've got, got to choose and select, what happens is social norming, social acceptance kicks in. If they haven't worked for two years, there must be something wrong with them. Other yeah. people have judged them. And so I don't have to, and I haven't got time to give everyone a chance. I've just got, I've got plenty of applications. I'm going to select these people to interview. And there was a further study by Gayad that found out that even if you're short-term unemployed, under six months unemployed, um, if you applied for a job and that they they controlled for name, ethnicity um, and experience and what have you, if you went for a job um, uh, and you had experience in that role, um, you had a 16% callback rate for interviews. Um, but if you went beyond six months, uh, that plummeted to about three and a half percent callback rate. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if you were short-term unemployed um, and had no experience, you had a nine percent callback rate. So what we're seeing is employers would rather take on somebody with l- no experience in that role as long as they haven't been unemployed for more than six months. And um, in, in a minute, we're going to wrap up and I'm going to ask you for maybe two or three things that you would say to people in, in my sector to help them um, use use the work that you do to, to support long-term unemployed people into into employment. So I'll let you sort of dwell on that as I speak. Um, what you've just talked about, though, is that similar to this notion? That I believe there's been some research where we are so focused as government on training the unemployed, but training doesn't necessarily lead to employment outcomes. Yeah, so somebody could have a chemical engineering degree or, or something. If they don't want to work, they won't work. Um, so it's getting to the reasons why they might not want to work. Right. And it's usually psychosocial reasons rather than uh, market forces or... Uh, you know, so, so before skills. we start putting in interventions then around training and sort of saying, you know, let's help these long-term unemployed people, get, let's get them, you know, various licenses and, and, and so on, whatever that sector might be, we actually need to first of all tackle issues as to why they won't work, break those social norms to support them. Yeah, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can do them at the same time. So this really comes on to sort of two, two takeaways, really for policymakers as much as anything, is, is that when, um, when we're frightened, when we're threatened by something, it's one of the greatest motivators. Um, we, we, it is fight, flight, or freeze. So we'll run away or we'll fight. You know, we'll, we'll become empowered to, to do something about it. But only when we feel capable Otherwise, we go into that freeze bit and we do nothing. So if you over-frighten someone with sanctions or you're never going to get a job, you're never going to be able to get married or get a car unless you go and get a job, and they don't feel capable of getting a job, then they won't. Mm. Um, and and, and it will have the, it will instill learned helplessness. So you need to also at the same time instill interview skills, conversation skills, um, qualifications. Um, to give them a feeling that they're capable, identify what their strengths are. 
so that they're feeling like they're in a front foot, not a scarcity back foot. Yeah. So that's the key thing. You know, fear is massively motivational as long as somebody feels capable of addressing that fear. Yeah. Um, so it's that capability. And the second very quick one is uh, that we touched on. If you remove choice and control, a sense of autonomy, uh, then people will push back against yeah. it. So work. And this is something we've talked about in previous episodes around, um, yeah, things like vaccination mandates, that sort of thing. Yes, yes. And, 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 and if you say to somebody, you have to do this job in order to get your benefits, even if that person really wants to work and actually fancied doing that job, but if it's forced upon them, they'll push back against it, they'll resent it, they'll do what they can to sabotage that and themselves. Um, but if you say, oh, look, you've got to do a job to keep it, but here are two or three options. Do you want to go here, here, or here? Suddenly that little bit of choice makes them feel more in control, less threatened, survivally and basely, and, um, and it will be a lot more effective. So to sum up today's episode, in-groups are powerful, so suggest you've been there if you want credibility within that group. Humans, however, have an acute authenticity radar. You must be authentic. Employers subconsciously favour those who are already employed or only short-term unemployed. So you improve your chances of an interview by at least 400% if you're working in any job or recently left a job. And finally, I guess fear is a great motivator for action, but only if you feel capable. If you don't feel that you have the resources, it will have the opposite effect and fear will result in learned helplessness. I mean, I, I think this is when we talk about so much because there's so much work to be done in the, uh, the, the for the long-term unemployment employment sector. Um, but thank you for that. Um, I know we're going to talk about this lots and lots in future episodes. If you like what we're talking about, then please uh, throw us a like, subscribe on YouTube or whichever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Thank you, Darren, Dr. Darren. Uh, and thanks for listening or watching. <laughs>